Open your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. We're going to begin verse 29 this morning. Um, Before we get started, I need to ask you uh, to work with me this morning, to work uh, maybe a little bit harder than you normally do. Um, We're going to we're going to do some Bible study this morning. Is that okay? So I need you to be ready to do a little bit of, of work with me, okay? This isn't going to be one of those sermons where you can just kind of sit back and get a little nugget here and there. You're going to have to work with me, okay? Okay? You have to dig in a little bit with me. I think, I think there'll be a payoff for you because Jesus asked a pretty profound question in our passage today. But I think if we, if we, if we don't do the work... The question's just going to go over our head. We're not going to understand the immensity of what Jesus asks, okay? Now, let me read this passage to you this morning. Matthew chapter 20, verses uh, 29 through chapter 21, verse 17. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and once, and once you are there, you will find a donkey tied there with her colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. 
Let me give you a little bit of context here, and then we're going to get to this question, and then we'll, we'll push on from there. Beginning back in chapter 16, Jesus has been talking about his eventual arrest and death. He's letting his disciples know that things are about to change. Um, Tyler, go ahead and put this first map up here. Most of Jesus' ministry uh, took place in Galilee, the northern, uh, not that one, yep, there we go, the northern end uh, of Palestine. So you can see Galilee there, just, it's written just off the left of the lake. This is the region where Jesus grew up. Nazareth was his hometown. Most of his disciples are from Galilee. This is common ground for him. This is known territory for him and for his disciples. He hasn't always been accepted, as we know, in Galilee, but it's been a relatively safe place for him to be. Okay? You can just leave that slide up there for a minute, Tyler. Um, in in, in uh, chapter 19, verse 1, Jesus tells us that he's going to start going south. Okay? He's already told his disciples that he's going to be arrested. Now he gives them some more information. He says, we're heading south. We're going into the region of Judea. And you see where that is in the southern end of the country. And then you see just to the north of it, Jerusalem, the capital city. So he's told them that we are, are going that way. We're going to Judea. We're heading towards Jerusalem. And then in, in chapter 20, verses 19 and 20, Jesus again predicts his death and now his resurrection. He says, we're going to Jerusalem and these things are going to happen. And then very recently in verse 29 of our chapter this morning, we read that Jesus was leaving Jericho and heading towards Jerusalem. And you can see Jericho along the road that Jesus would have traveled, heading south from Galilee into Jericho. And now the text says up to Jerusalem, up because Jerusalem is 3,000 feet above sea level from where Jesus was coming from in Jericho. Matthew is, has been letting us know that there's something coming for a number of chapters now. Jesus is heading south, leaving familiar territory. He's predicted his arrest, his crucifixion. And he gives us these hints. He's getting closer. He's getting closer. He's getting closer. He's getting closer. And today, he leaves Jericho, and he's going to enter Jerusalem, the place where he has told his disciples, I will be arrested. I will be mocked. I will be tortured. And then I will be crucified. So the disciples know this. You can picture maybe what their state of mind is as they're coming in to Jerusalem. And we as the readers, we know this as well. There's a tension that Matthew, as any good author would do, has built into his story. The tension is rising. We're, we're moving towards some kind of a climactic confrontation. They're no longer on their home turf. The religious opposition that Jesus has confronted in Galilee is only going to increase in Jerusalem, the center of religious authority for the Jews. It's also the center of political power for the occupying Romans. This is where they have their headquarters to uh, oversee their territory in Palestine. Unlike other regions in Palestine, this area is governed not by a puppet Jewish king, one of Herod's sons. This is governed by a Roman prefect, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. Sound familiar? He's going to pop up a little bit later as we go through Matthew. So this tension is building. Jesus has said what is going to happen. And then when we get to verse 1 of chapter 21 in our text this morning, we enter um, 
basically the rest of the book of Matthew. It's about a quarter of the book, but you know it covers only one week's worth of time. Right? So we've been moving pretty quickly, three years of ministry up, up until now. And now Matthew puts on the brakes. The remaining chapters, the verses, the stories, the teachings, all happen within about one week's worth of time. So you see what Matthew's doing here. He's telling a good story. And we, as, as the people who've been studying this book, who've been reading it, we should know that something's coming that we need to be paying attention to. Matthew has done everything he can to say, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. Something's coming. Something climactic is about to come. And so what do we find in our story today? Two blind beggars sitting on the side of a road. And it's to these beggars that Jesus asks, I think, this very profound question. Now, these beggars are sitting on the side of the road, and, and, and there's large crowds coming through. This uh, story takes place during Passover. Does that sound familiar to anybody, Passover? The Jews celebrated three major pilgrimage uh, festivals. When people, well, Jewish men, were expected to come to Jerusalem to celebrate these festivals. But Passover was the one that was most highly observed. You remember what Passover celebrated? It was the people's liberation, the Jews' liberation from Egypt, right? When God passed over the firstborn Jewish boys, spared their lives, and eventually led them out of Egypt. It's a huge moment for the nation of Israel. And it was the time of the year when everybody descended on Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem uh, at this time had a population of about 30,000. At Passover, it swelled to 180,000. Can you imagine Chicago swelling by that percentage? That's what it was like. There literally wasn't enough room in the city for everybody to stay. And so people came prepared to camp out outside of the city. A lot of people would have slept on the Mount of Olives. Again, that's going to come up in our story later. It makes sense maybe why Jesus spends his time in the Mount of Olives. There's no room to stay in Jerusalem. There's 180,000 people in the city. And many of these people who are coming from Galilee, south to Judea, south to Jerusalem, would have been on the same road up from Jericho as Jesus and his disciples were on, right? So hundreds, perhaps thousands of people on this road going to Jerusalem for Passover. It makes sense for these two blind beggars to sit on that road, doesn't it? They're being pretty strategic. There's a lot of uh, benevolent people passing by. They know it. Passover's coming. This is where we want to be. Makes sense, right? They're smart. And so they're on the side of the road. They're asking for money, as they've probably done for most of their lives. It appears that Jesus' reputation has preceded him. Because you notice in our text that nobody introduces the blind beggars to Jesus, do they? They've heard that this prophet is coming. Jesus. And what do they say? They, they, they call out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, let's, uh, let's just for kicks, let's reenact this, okay? So I need a couple volunteers. Um, I need two blind beggars. I'm not joking, really. Okay, Christine, a blind beggar. Let's have a, let's have, okay, Michelle's going to be a blind beggar. Great. And now I need Jesus. Who wants to be Jesus? Come on, blind beggars, you can go ahead and come on up. I need Jesus. Come on up, come on up. We got Jesus, okay? Um, so blind beggars, if you, can, if you can be 
I will let the, the, the pregnant blind beggar sit here. Christ, yes, Christine, stand up here. Who, you're Jesus, Dexter? Okay, Dexter, you come over here. You come over here. Did we have the Jesus get rejected? Is that what happened? Oh, man, that's so horrible. Okay, now you have a role, uh, uh, a congregation, you have a role as well. Now, see if you can remember your lines, blind beggars. Your lines are, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Okay, now you're going to say it twice. You're going to say it twice. You're going to say it twice. Uh, Jesus, your, your line, your line, what do you want me to do for you? Got it? Okay, now, church, your role, because here, here's what happens in the passage. We read in, in verse 30, two blind men were sitting by the side of the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. That's your job, okay? So whatever you want to do. But it, just needs to, it needs to be pretty loud, okay? All right? So, um, so I'll just kind of cue you guys. I'm going to cue you for your first time, then I'll cue you guys, cue you for your second time, and then Jesus, you say your line, Okay? Everybody ready? Everybody ready? Okay, okay. Remember, you're yelling. You're desperate. You okay? Ready? Okay, go ahead. Go. Wait, I haven't cued you yet. You want a lot of detail here, don't you? Yeah. Uh, let's do it at the same time. We'll do it at the same time. Okay, ready? And go. Okay, now louder this time. Okay, now just stop here for a moment because we're going to end our sermon at this. We're going we're to leave this alone, then we're going to come back to it end. But I want you to just put yourself in these two blind beggars' shoes for a moment. Their whole life, they've been blind, they haven't been able to see anything. They've heard a reputation of this prophet who's been healing people, right? So the reputation has preceded Jesus, and now Jesus is walking in the midst of this thronging crowd, thousands of people going up to Passover, and out of the distance, he hears this, Lord, Son of David, have mercy. And then just loud commotion, be quiet, we're going somewhere, you know. But Jesus stops. And in that moment, I imagine it gets really quiet. Thousands of people around. And Matt, put your, again, put yourself in these blind beggar's shoes. You can't see what's going on, can they? But it just went from loud, antagonistic, and now the only voice they can hear is Jesus. They've never heard his voice before. They've never met him before. And, and Jesus asked them one question. What do you want me to do for you. What would have you said in that moment? How would have you responded in that moment? We're going to come back to that at the end. Can we thank our actors? Nice job. <laughs> I want to end our time on that, on that question, so let it just sit there for a minute. But in order for us to, I think, understand the the significance, again, the immensity of what Jesus asks here is we need to see what Matthew does immediately following this question. He puts these two stories right next to each other. This healing of these two blind men uh, stands next to one of the most well-known stories in the gospel, the triumphal entry 
Many of you grew up in churches where you celebrated Palm Sunday. Did anybody, anybody do that Palm Sunday? Anybody wave the palm branches? Anybody feel silly waving the palm branches? Um, you shouldn't feel silly. It's actually pretty amazing. But, um, but we, some of us, at least, we come from these traditions where we celebrated Palm Sundays. We have this image in our mind of this kind of odd parade that Jesus was a part of, where people are, they got branches for some reason, and then they, they're taking their, their jackets off and putting them on the ground, right, which is odd, and Jesus is riding a donkey. It's just an odd scene, would you agree? But somehow it's, it's really important. The gospel writers include this. They want us to see this. Why, why, why? So let's look, and this is where you have to do the, the Bible study work with me. Have your Bibles open. If you're taking notes, get ready to take some notes. We need to see what Matthew wants us to see here, and then I want us to go back to this question and, and, and see how we might answer it had we been in those two blind beggars' shoes. Um, I want to point out um, a few different roles as we study this passage this morning that I think Matthew wants us to see, different roles that Jesus has played, different parts uh, of who he is. The first one that I think we see is Jesus the rabbi. Jesus the rabbi. Now, we've seen this many times throughout Matthew. We talked about this towards the beginning of our sermon series, but a rabbi was a Jewish teacher who had uh, pupils who were known as disciples, Right? And, and unlike most of our educational experience where we go to school, we fill our heads up with facts that we can then regurgitate, disciples followed their rabbi, their teacher, everywhere. The goal was not to learn information. The goal was to become like their rabbi. Right? That was the point. That was the goal. Not to take a test and, okay, I'm a good disciple now. But my life would actually be transformed. So I would look like my rabbi. That was the, the point of that kind of education. And I think we see this because Jesus, as they approach Jerusalem, he tells two disciples, and we don't know which two. None of the gospel writers tell us. But he tells two of his disciples, go to the village ahead of you, and at, and, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them. He will send them right away. What would you do if Jesus told you to do that? Would you do it? Seriously, would you do it? You would just like walk into a village and look for a donkey and just take it? And Oh, yeah, if someone like stops you, just say, uh, the Lord needs it. <laughs> but they do it, right? They do it. Uh, Matthew doesn't belabor this point, but he includes this little detail, and I think it's interesting. I think it's important. These are... These are men who have followed Jesus for three years now. And what maybe would have sounded absurd to them three years ago, now they're like, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) That sounds like something Jesus would ask us to do. So it's probably going to happen. And it does. It does. They they walk into this village. They find this donkey and uh, her colt or foal that's never been ridden before. and And they take it and they bring it to Jesus. And again, we don't need to belabor this point because we spent a lot of time talking about this role that Jesus plays as a rabbi, as a teacher, the one who shows us the way to the kingdom of heaven. I think Matthew wants us to see this. That Jesus is the best teacher we could ever have. The most perfect teacher we could ever have. The only teacher whose life is worthy of emulation, of adoration. The second role that we see Jesus play in our passage is that of a king. 
And again, we've talked about this a a fair bit, so I won't spend a ton of time on this, but Jesus is very intentional here, and so I think we need to pay attention here. Up until now, Jesus has been very quiet about his ministry. You notice that anytime he heals somebody, what does he say? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody about it. He doesn't want the word to get out, right? So he's been pretty quiet, pretty secretive. Whenever there's big crowds that gather, Jesus finds a way to kind of slip out the back door, right? That all changes in our passage today. You'll notice from here on out, Jesus is not secretive. From here on out, Jesus actually seems to be drawing attention to himself, which is very different than what he's done so far. He seems to want people to notice him, to pay attention to him. Jesus has not ridden anything yet, right? Walked everywhere. But again, the gospel writers want us to see Jesus intentionally chooses to ride into Jerusalem. Why? 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 He enters Jerusalem uh, not under the cover of darkness, uh, not not during the the religious off-season. He enters Jerusalem at the height of its population. When the most people would be around, that's when Jesus chooses to ride into Jerusalem. Why? Why? The crowds greet him as a Messiah. What do they say? Hosanna! Hosanna literally translated means uh, save us now. It was originally a a plea, but over time had taken on uh, the the sense of, of praise. Save us now directed at God, the only one who could actually save us now. Hosanna. Hosanna. He's praise directed at this coming king coming into the city. Now, uh, the branches, the branches symbolized a couple of things. Just waving them was a, a symbol of nationalism, national Jewish pride, right? So there's a revolutionary spirit in the air. But then they lay the branches uh, down before Jesus as a sign of submission to a coming king, right? There's two things coming going on here nationalistic pride and fervor and zeal and submission to this one who's riding in as a king. The coats are laid down as a sign of honor. And the reality is that these are probably the only coats that these travelers had. They didn't travel with a lot of suitcases, right? So the only jacket they have on their back, they laid down. All of this, all of this symbolism that Matthew includes, it's symbolism of a coming king entering the capital city. This is kingly imagery. This is Jesus as Messiah, as king. And for many, this scene would have been very reminiscent of a story that they'd been telling for 200 years about a guy named Judas Maccabees. Judas Maccabees had rescued Jerusalem, had rescued the Jewish people by defeating the previous occupying force, which were the Greeks. And when Judas Maccabees waged war and ran the Greeks out of Jerusalem, this scene is exactly what happened. He rode into the city, Hosanna, Hosanna, branches waved, coats laid down, the exact same scene. So it's calling to mind history of a previous king, revolutionary, who came into the city. You see this? Yes? Yes, yes, yes. But there's a problem. What is Jesus writing? Donkey. That That's not part of the script. It should be like a stallion, a horse, not a donkey. Who rides a donkey, right? What does Jesus say? Go to that village, find donkey, 
colt who's never been ridden. So there's actually a, a, a mother donkey. I don't know what you call that. And then a, you know, baby donkey. Uh, and and it's, it, there's, they're both there because probably Jesus is riding this, this donkey that's never been ridden, this baby donkey. And the baby wants his mo- mother there, right? Because it would be scared otherwise. So just an interesting detail. Don't ask me anything about that because that's all I know about donkeys right there. So He's on a donkey. So here's this kingly imagery, conquering, revolutionary king. Jesus is very intentional about putting all of these symbolic things on, right? You see that. It's a choice to kind of come out as the king, but he gets on a donkey. And a donkey for the Jewish people would have been a sign of meekness and of peace. And to help us a little bit, Matthew quotes from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. Now, Matthew just quotes verse 9 of chapter 9 of Zechariah, but I want to include verse 10 as well, because this was a pretty well-known passage, and people would have gone there in their heads. So so let me, do we have that up there? Um, I don't know if I gave that to you or not, Tyler. Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king, your king, your king, comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly. Hmm, Lowly. And riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. Peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Now this is a messianic passage. This is a kingly passage. But it wasn't one of the popular ones. Because this wasn't about waging war against your enemies. Military might and victory, was it? This is about disarmament. We'll break our battle bows. King will ride in on a donkey and come in peace for the nations. Now, if we've been paying attention, this probably shouldn't surprise us because over and over again, we've seen Jesus behaving as the Messiah, as the coming king, but it's always just a little off. It's never how people are expecting it, is it? No, no, we're Jesus, we're pretty sure what you're supposed to do here. No, 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 no. It never quite fits. So if we've been paying attention, it makes sense that Jesus, he takes on this kingly imagery and then gets on a donkey. This is a king who comes with peace for all of the nations. This is a king whose rule and reign is going to look different than they expected. His victory will not be limited to defeating certain political enemies. His victory will include sin and evil itself. His reign will be not limited to one ethnic group or one nation, but reign and rule over everyone. So now, as if to just reinforce the surprising nature of this king's coming reign, he chooses to ride on a donkey. So we see him as a rabbi. We see him as a king. And now we see him as a prophet. Um, In verse 10, Jesus actually enters the city of Jerusalem. Up until now, the Hosanna, Hosanna, the the, the triumphal entry, he hasn't actually entered the city yet. So think about this for a minute. The people who are really excited about Jesus are probably the same ones who've been traveling with Jesus from Galilee. All of the praise, all of the cheering, all of the adoration has so far taken place outside of the city. 
These are the people who've been traveling south with Jesus. They are, who are they? They're Galileans. This is, this is, Jesus is one of their people. He speaks the same dialect. He's got the same accent. You get it? So, so they're, they're like, they're excited. Like, we got we to gotta stay close to this guy, right? He's one of us. So they're excited, they're happy, and then something shifts pretty dramatically in verse 10. They enter Jerusalem, and now, and now, and now, people aren't so sure about Jesus. Now the questions start. Who is this? The whole city, Matthew tells us, was stirred by Jesus' entry. You know what's interesting? It's a very similar language that we see at the beginning of Matthew when Jesus was born. Matthew tells us that Herod was greatly troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. It's very, very similar language. What's he, Matthew's kind of bookending here. Jesus' birth, troubling to the powers and to the authorities, even as an infant. And now a week before his death, Jesus enters the city, troubling to the powers and the authorities once again. The whole city stirred, troubled because of his entry. And so they ask the, the Galilean crowd, who is this? This is an outsider who's entering their city. They don't know who he is. Or he's not familiar to them. And he's coming in as a king? Who does he think he is? What does the crowd say? They answer him and they say, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This was the, the, the biggest language they could have used about somebody. He's a prophet. When Jesus asked his disciples a few chapters back, who do the people say I am? Who do the crowd say I am? Do you remember what they said? Some say you're a prophet. Remember that? An Old Testament prophet. That was a huge compliment. Now, we know it's a limited view of Jesus, but that was a, that was a big deal to say that somebody was a prophet. It's been a long time since there have been any prophets. Say, this is Jesus. And they kind of work it in there. You know, from Nazareth. Galilee, where we're from, our neighborhood, our side of the city. He's a prophet. In other words, this is someone who speaks the very words of God. This is someone whose actions demonstrate to us what God is doing in our world. And we can say, yes, that's right, that's true. It's a limited answer, but it's true. Jesus is a prophet. So Matthew shows us Jesus as rabbi, Jesus as king, Jesus as prophet, and now Jesus as priest. Say priest. We've not talked about this very much yet. We've talked about some of these other pieces in our sermon series. We've not talked about this priestly role very much. So I'm going to spend the, uh, the bulk of my sermon on this point right here. Um, and again, going to get fairly detailed, so please hang with me. Are you doing okay? Are you still awake? Yes? Ethan, yes? We're, you're doing, great, okay, thank you. Ethan's got two, two little boys, so if he's staying awake, the rest of you have no excuse. And another, and another yeah, so, you know, I'm just saying, the rest of you, here we go. Um, so Jesus enters Jerusalem, we see, and um, can we put the slide of, the, of, the, of Jerusalem? Do we have one of Jerusalem up there? Okay, this is a little bit hard to see, so let me help, let me help you. Can, can you see how there's like walls and there's a darker shade and then a lighter shade? Okay, the darker shade was Jerusalem at this, at this time, okay? Like the, the lighter shade at the top, that, that wasn't 
part of the city at this point, okay? So you can see the, the white road coming down from the south and then bending into the city. So let's go to the slide of the temple then, Tyler. So the first area that Jesus, if he had been coming on this road from the south, from Jericho, entering from the eastern part of the city, the very first part that Jesus would have entered into would have been the temple complex, okay? Matthew tells us that Jesus enters the temple. And what he means by that is not he entered like the temple itself or the holy of holies in the temple, but actually just this complex, the the temple grounds that's everything inside of these walls. You see that? This is a pretty big area. This is, this covers about 33 acres. It's about a mile in circumference. Okay. Can you get that in your head? Pretty big, right? Pretty big. So this was the place that uh, people gathered in the city of Jerusalem, especially if you didn't live there, right? So there's 180,000 people in the city right now. If you wanted to meet up with somebody from your hometown, you're probably going to say, hey, let's meet in the southeast corner of the temple ground, right? So, So there's lots of people gathering in the temple right now, and this is where Jesus and his disciples uh, enter. And we find uh, Matthew telling us that there's money changers and merchants in the temple. There are people changing money and they are selling doves and other animals for sacrifice. Now, I don't know how you've heard this sermon preached before, this passage preached before, but, but sometimes people will come away with the idea that Jesus was really mad at the money changers. Jesus was really mad at the merchants who were selling. But I actually don't think that's the case. And, and I'll tell you why. Because people uh, had to pay a temple tax at this time and it had to be in a specific currency. Most people traveling into the city didn't have that currency, okay? So they had to exchange money in order to pay the temple tax. So the money changers, and I know that sounds bad, but they were, they were providing a needed service, okay? They were changing money into a currency that was acceptable to pay the temple tax. Same thing with the merchants. Imagine that you traveled all the way down from Galilee to make a sacrifice at Passover. Like the last thing you want to do is be dragging an animal along with you to make a sacrifice, right? I'm assuming, I've never personally experience that, but I'm just guessing, right? So there's, there's all these merchants who are available to sell you uh, an acceptable animal that, that can then be uh, offered as a sacrifice for the atonement of sins at the temple, okay? So both of these, the money changers and the merchants, they provide a needed service, okay? So Jesus, I don't think, is just ticked off at these money changers or the merchants. They play a very important role. So why does he throw them out of the temple then? I think we get a, a, an idea of this in what Jesus says here as he's doing it, right? So in verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and, and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And now this is what he says. It is written, he said to them, whenever Jesus says that, he's looking back to the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament as we call it, my house will be called a house of prayer, First quotation, second quotation, but you are making it into a den of robbers. Now, this first quotation, my house will be called a house of prayer, comes from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, and the whole verse is, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Okay? So something has offended Jesus here. Jesus understands that the temple was to be the center of reconciliation between God and the nation of Israel and by extension, the whole world, right? We, we go back kind of in the Old Testament, and we find the first time that God comes to Abram, out of which the nation of Israel comes. God says, I'm going to bless you, Abram. I'm going to give you a new name. You're going to become a father of a great family who will be a great nation. Why? To bless the whole world. To show the world who I am, what I am like, right? 
So the temple then over time becomes the place where reconciliation happens between God and the nation of Israel to restore relationship and thus, by extension, the world. So it's a pretty important place, would you agree? Jesus says it's a house of prayer. It's where God and humanity come together and are reconciled so that there can be relationship, communication. So something, something has offended Jesus about this. This is what it was meant to be, Jesus said. But, what did he say? You turned it into a den of robbers. What is he getting at here? There's a a theologian who, um, well, let me me get to that in just a second. The high priest would have been the one who, who mediated this reconciliation between God and the nation of Israel. So sacrifices would be made by the high priest, by the one selected to enter the Holy of Holies, to make atoning sacrifices for, for, for God's people, and again, by extension, the world. So why, why does he throw these money changers and merchants? Why is Jesus ticked? Up until recently, um, we, we know just from, from history, the money changers and the, um, the merchants, they had actually been located outside of the city. They hadn't been in the, in the temple courts. They were actually on the Mount of Olives, just outside the city. So if you needed to buy an animal, you'd go to the Mount of Olives. If you needed to change some money, you'd go to the Mount of Olives. But just recently, just in the, in the few years uh, prior to our story today, the high priest, a guy named Caiaphas, he made it uh, possible for the money changers and the merchants to come into the temple itself and to begin selling and exchanging money. So this is a pretty new move. Um, Caiaphas is somebody who we're going to meet again. He was currently the high priest. And he is the one who would oversee Jesus' religious trial. Ringing a bell? Anybody? Let me jump ahead, and we're going to get to this in a few weeks. But I want to read to you a portion from Jesus' trial to give you an idea of what Caiaphas was like. Remember, he is the high priest. He He is the one who makes atoning sacrifices to reconcile people and God. Okay? You see that. Incredibly important role. Verse 63. The high priest, Caiaphas said to him, to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest, Caiaphas, tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? So this is the high priest. This is the one supposedly set apart by God to be the mediator between God and God's people the one to make atoning sacrifices to reconcile God and God's people. You see that? Caiaphas is the one who has Jesus slapped, spit on, eventually crucified. This this, this is the theologian I mentioned a minute ago. This is what he says is happening right now with the temple. Listen closely. The temple itself, instead of being regarded as the place where Israel could come to God in prayer... Okay, so that was his purpose. For the nation of Israel to come to God in prayer at the temple had come to stand for the violent longings 
for a great revolution in which the kingdom of God would come by force. Let me say that again. This was meant to be a house of prayer, people to come and be reconciled to God. They come to stand for the violent longings of a great revolution in which the kingdom of God would come by force. This theologian, a guy named N.T. Wright, he goes on to say, it was everything Jesus had opposed throughout his lifetime. You see this. In other words, under the, the, the rule of Caiaphas, this high priest, and probably those preceding him as well, the temple had come to stand actually in opposition to what Jesus was about. Had come to be an obstruction even between God and God's people, the place that had been meant for reconciliation, atoning sacrifice, the safe place of prayer, had instead, under this man's rule, come to be the center of a violent longing for a revolution, right, that would have at its center, and this is what we've seen before, a Messiah, a political Messiah, who would do what? Defeat the Romans, reestablish purity in the temple, and bring the exiles home. Turn to your neighbor and say, wake up! I know some of you are struggling right now. It's okay. It's like getting hot in here, right? Like, it doesn't make it easy. So watch this. By clearing the temple, stay with me. By clearing the temple, Jesus is doing two things. First, by disrupting the sacrifices, he's undermining the high priest's authority. By disrupting the sacrifices, he drives out the money changers, drives out those selling uh, animals, so people can't make sacrifices in that moment. By, by disrupting the sacrifices, Jesus is actually undermining Caiaphas, the high priest's authority. And because of that, he's creating a mediation vacuum. The way of being reconciled to God was through the high priest, the mediator, who would take your sacrifices and offer them to God. That's how you would be reconciled by God, to God. So by disrupting this, by undermining the high priest's authority, there's now a mediation vacuum. You see this? This was a big deal. This was how it worked. This is how people were reconciled to God. The people, I had just traveled all the way down from Galilee. Jesus just undercuts the whole thing. It's a big deal. It's not just about tossing a few people out. Jesus is undercutting, subverting an entirely, and I think in Jesus' perspective, corrupt way of being reconciled to God. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't need a priest to mediate for him, does he? Everybody else showing up at the temple that day, they're expecting there's going to be a priest who's going to mediate between them and God because I'm too sinful. I'm not perfect. I'm not holy. I need a mediator to stand between me and a holy God. Jesus shows up and says, what? I don't need that. Just a few chapters ago at the transfiguration, we see God the Father look at Jesus and say, what? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God the Father didn't have to say that through somebody else to get to Jesus. He speaks directly to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can show up at the temple and say, I don't need a mediator. Amen? He's the only one who can do this. Not only doesn't Jesus need a mediator, he's made it very clear that you and I do 
So what's he doing here? Because throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has made it clear that you all still need a mediator. I've not come to overturn the law, come to fulfill the law, right? You all still, you're imperfect, sinful, messed up people. You can't stand in front of a holy God. You still need a mediator. Jesus shows up and says, I'm the only one who doesn't. I don't need a mediator. But you still do. And, and, you need a different kind of mediation. We need a mediator who will not just make atonement for our sinful actions, covering things up, but one who will go to the heart of who we are. Amen. Transform our hearts. Work his atonement, not just on the surface, not just covering up our sin, but actually transforming us at the heart of who we are. When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he's already claimed to need no priestly mediator, and he's already claimed that the current priestly mediation, it's insufficient and it's corrupt. Humanity is still in need of mediation. We still need reconciliation with God. And yet, according to Jesus, the temple system and the high priest, it ain't doing it. It's broke. We still need this mediation. And yet the current system, as Jesus shows up, he subverts and he says it's it's bankrupt, actually. Can maybe imagine a little bit why Caiaphas, the high priest, was so mad at Jesus. He was personally confronted in this. So who will be the incorruptible mediator whose reconciliation doesn't just cover our sins, doesn't just stay on the surface, but actually transforms us? Look at what Jesus does immediately after he kicks people out. This is fascinating to me. Look at verse 14. Immediately after Jesus says, look, you've turned the temple into a den of robbers, the very next sentence, Matthew says, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Now again, stick with me here. Why just the blind and the lame? Jesus healed a lot of people, right? He healed lepers, healed people who were, who were dying, Little people, big, he's healed a lot. Why does Matthew just say the blind and the lame? Why is he so precise about that? Tyler, do we have the same? Did I give you the Second Samuel passage? Second Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. It's a very short little snippet of King David back in the Old Testament establishing Jerusalem as his capital city. Okay, so let me read this to you. The king, that's David, and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there, right? The Jebusites, they're this people who currently live in Jerusalem. It's not yet the Jewish capital city. The Jebusites said to David, they're taunting him here, you will not get in here. Even the blind and lame can ward you off. They thought David could not get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David, Jerusalem. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. This is taunting going back and forth. But then, then look at this very last sentence here. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. So right from the beginning of Jerusalem's founding as the Jewish capital city, there's this tradition that develops that a blind person or a lame person could not enter the temple. It's always how it's been. In the very beginning, this kind of historical reason, not necessarily a great reason, probably involves some king's pride as these things tend to work. There's a tradition that develops. If you're blind, if you're lame, 
can't enter the temple. It's always been like that. It's the very founding of the city. But what does Jesus do? I mean, I mean, I mean, right away, he kicks out the money changers, he kicks out the merchant, and the next thing he does, blind people, lame people. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. You've been told that you can't come in. Come here, come on, come on. And he heals them. Jesus takes on this priestly role as our mediator, the only one who doesn't need a mediator. He takes on this role as our mediator, and he says, I'm not just going to cover up your sins. I'm not just going to put a Band-Aid on it. I'm just not going to ignore it for another year until you're back here again. I'm going to heal I'm going to transform you. I'm going to say to those who've been excluded, no, you're included. To everyone who has something that that they they feel like has kept them from full worship and embrace of God, I'm going to take that away. Amen? Is that good news? I love this little throwaway sentence that we could just pass right over. Jesus, no, blind people, lame, there's nothing now, there's nothing now that will keep you from worshiping God. Because a new mediator has come. A new high priest has come. One who, who doesn't himself need any mediation and one whose mediation, whose atonement for us, transforms us at the heart of who we are. No other mediator can do this. No other mediator can do this. And so we see Jesus as the trusted rabbi who shows us the new way to life within the kingdom of heaven, as the unexpected king whose victory comes through his own suffering and death, whose reign is one of peace for the world, as the prophet who speaks the very words of God, only what he hears the Father saying, as the priest who needs no mediator and whose atonement transforms us. And underneath all of these, undergirding all of these is something else, the last last role. And we see it coming from the mouths of children in our past. Right after the sentence of the blind and the lame being healed in verse 15, we read, but, the, but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children in the temple calling Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And I hope it makes sense now why they were indignant, why they were angry, why they were frustrated. So I say, do, they, do you know, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus says, yeah, I do. I do. Have you never heard? Have you never read? And then he quotes from the Psalms, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. What's going on here? The children, I think they're identifying Jesus as many in that moment are as the Messiah. And again, we've we've said this many times, there's specific expectations of what that means, right? This is is God's sent one who's going to do specific things on behalf of God's people. And and the priests, they're indignant, right? Because Jesus isn't fitting their pattern what they think he's supposed to do. He's not supposed to undercut the high priest. He's not supposed to undercut the system as it exists. He's supposed to reinforce it. He's supposed to cleanse it, purify it. They're indignant. And these children, they're they're praising Jesus. And and, and so the, the priests, they come to him and say, basically, hey, they're blaspheming. You need to stop this. Jesus basically just makes it worse by quoting from the Psalms. Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 through 2, is a, it's a psalm of praise directed at God. 
So, so, so this is what it says. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. And then the part that's included in our passage this morning. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. And Jesus is just like kicking it up a notch. He, he's, he, you know what Jesus is doing? He's saying, high priests, teachers of the law, it's way worse than you think. Is wisdom. <laughs> Because I'm not just a political messiah. I'm the son of God. He takes this psalm that's directed at God the Father, and he applies it directly to himself. You want to talk about blasphemy? Jesus said, no, 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 no. It's it's way worse than you think it is. When you you really understand what I'm claiming, you're going to have to kill me. You will have to put me to death when you really get what I'm claiming. That's how big this is. Undergirding Jesus as the rabbi, Jesus as the prophet, as the king, as the priest, it's Jesus as the son of God. And we can't miss this. We can't miss this because in the coming week, Jesus is going to be arrested, mocked, tortured, spit on, and eventually crucified. We can't miss that underneath all of these roles is Jesus as the son of God. Jesus goes to the cross, not just as a rabbi, not just as a priest, not just as a prophet, not even as a king. Jesus goes to the cross as the Son of God. Because the Scriptures tell us that the grave could not hold the Son of God, Jesus is resurrected. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It was the Son of God who was put to death, and so it was the Son of God who was resurrected, and so it, was the, it is the Son of God who reigns and rules at the right hand of the Father, allowing Paul to say, there is nothing now that can come between you and God. Nothing that can separate you between Love of the Father. Because the Son of God has been resurrected, has defeated death, sin, and evil for all time. Because, of this, because the Son of God willingly went to the cross, you and I have an eternal rabbi who points us to abundant life. Because the Son of God willingly went to the cross, you and I have a king who reigns and rules over all creation, including your tiny little corner of it. Because the Son of God willingly went to the cross, we have a prophet who speaks the very words of God to us. Because the Son of God willingly went to the cross, we have a high priest who reconciles us to God and whose atonement doesn't just cover it up, but transforms us in our hearts. Because the Son of God willingly went to the cross, we are friends forever with God. Restored into relationship with our Creator. Go back to the scene. Go back to the scene. It's two blind beggars on the road. Jesus coming by. You remember the question that he asked them? What do you want me to do for you? Ask the question. What do you want me to do for you? Now, some of us, I think, we're like, I wish Jesus would show up and ask me that question. Because I got a list. 
Jesus the rabbi. This is Jesus the king. This is Jesus the prophet. This is Jesus the high priest. This is Jesus the son of God who could not be held by the grave asking this question. What do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that question? How will you answer that question? Like initially, some of us can think like, wow, it's kind of like having a genie ask me what anything. Well, no, it's so much, would you agree, bigger than that? Uh, I mentioned this a, f- a few weeks ago. We were talking about marriage and divorce and singleness and how so often we pray that our circumstances will change rather than that we will change. Right? The, the, the beggars, they could have said, well, Jesus, give us enough money so I'll never have to beg again. Or, or set me up with a, with a house, you know, where I can get, get around easily as a blind person. Jesus, could you change my circumstances? Jesus, could you actually transform me? I've never been able to see. I'd like to see. Transform me, heal me, change me. Didn't ask for money, didn't ask for a new act. Change me. How do we how do we answer this question? I was thinking about this and um, I'm reflecting back on, on some of my own experience in this, and um, many of you guys know that our son is adopted, and um, he was all over the place this morning, so parents, you know how that can be. Um, and uh, uh, so, so Maggie and I, you know, when we, when we got married, we thought, you know, we're going to get married, and then it seems like three years after you get married, that's, that's a good time to have kids. We had it all figured out. And, and, and you know, it didn't happen. And it still didn't happen. And it still didn't happen. And we, we know how it works. We know how it's supposed to happen. You know, we read the manual. You know, it wasn't a lack of knowledge. But it wasn't happening. And I, I was reflecting on a couple of different moments uh, in the sermon. And one was uh, after a visit to a, a midwife kind of infertility specialist. And she bombarded us with information. You do this, and you got to do this at this time, and, and you got to make watching these things, and that's really as specific as I can get, just because I can't, you know, remember, actually. But it was, <laughs> it was a lot. I'll just tell you, it was a lot of information. And I remember uh, we lived in the suburbs at this time, and we were walking through the neighborhood afterwards, and just feeling so out of control. Just feeling like this thing that ought to be pretty straightforward, like, you know, you just had a baby. Was completely out of our control, and 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 thinking about you know what would in that moment what would I say to Jesus? Of what do I want you to do? For, well, I wanted my circumstances to change. I wanted a baby to come, how it was supposed to come. And then I reflected forward a little bit into our adoption process, and it's kind of this emotional roller coaster that it was. And uh, I remember hearing that oh there there may be a family that wants you to be the adoptive parents of their, of their child and getting excited and then this child coming and not meeting him and not knowing if we would ever meet him. And then this child came home with birth parents and 
Now, well, that's probably the end of that. And then we heard that, no, maybe there's still a chance. And, and then this baby got really, really sick and, and went to the hospital. I had RSV. Do you know what RSV is? I don't know what it stands for. It's bad. It, it, our doctor said that, that Elliot really should have died. And, uh, and all through this, completely out of control. I mean, zero control. And my prayer in that moment was, God, change my circumstances. And today I can look back and say, I'm so glad that God did not change my circumstances. I am so thankful, so thankful that our story went the way it went. Now ask me in 10 years when Elliot's like, you know, teenagers are a different answer. But you hear what I'm saying? You hear what I'm saying? Man, painful, confusing, completely out of control. And my prayer in that moment was, God changed my circumstances. And you know what God said? Nope. 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 I want to change you. David, how come you don't trust me right now? David, how come you don't think I'm in control of the situation right now? David, how come you don't think I know what is best for this new baby right now? I want to change you. Anybody relate to that a little bit? So Jesus walks up to you as a rabbi, as a priest, as a prophet, as a king, as the son of God who could not be held by the grave and asks you, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer Worship team, you come on back up, and, and this is how I want to end. And, and I appreciate you guys working with me today and, and hanging in there through all these details. I want to ask you to work a little bit harder just for the next just couple minutes. This is the kind of sermon you can walk away with and be like, I learned some stuff today. But there's this question I think that Jesus has put in front of us, which is, what do you want me to do for you today? And so before we sing our last song, I just want you to, can you sit with that question for a minute? Can, can you meditate on who Jesus is? Can you consider the one who asks you this? Will you answer not just the question, but will you answer the one who has shown you the way to God? Will you answer the one who is the ruler of the universe? Will you answer the one who has the very words of God? Will you answer the one who stands between you and a perfect and holy God who doesn't just cover up your sin but transforms the heart of who you are? So Zach will just start playing here in just a minute and, and, and I just want you to just sit with this. Close your eyes if you need to. Just ask the Holy Spirit to bring this question to bear on your heart. Ask for a bigger picture of who Jesus is. Ask that, that your imagination would be more able to, to hold this one who is prophet, priest, rabbi, king, and son of God. Reflect on your life right now. What are the things that you have been praying about? What are your petitions? What are your needs? Who have you been bringing those to? Have you been bringing them to Jesus in all of his fullness, in all of his majesty, in all of his glory? Or have your requests been half-hearted? 
Have they been a little bit shallow? Have they been a little bit short-sighted? What, what have your prayer requests, what do they reflect about where you are right now? About what's true for you? About what you're struggling with? write some stuff down, write a word down. Capture whatever it is that God is speaking to you right now so you don't walk out and forget it later today. Type something into your phone if you need to. What do you want me to do?